Our Old Testament reading is Joel 2, one of many Old Testament passages which speaks of the day of the Lord, that coming day of God when He will bring His kingdom. Uh, it's a day that's fulfilled in Christ's first coming and His second coming. Uh, this is um, a prophecy that speaks of the salvation that the King will bring and that the Judge will bring, but also the judgment that He will bring. And this is a theme we'll see picked up by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 7 in just a few minutes. So Joel chapter 2. This is the very Word of God. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All their faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, and for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Surrend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. The nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far away from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he's done monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. 
For the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now the words of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. I've included verse 14, verses 13 and 14 in the reading here. The sermon text is going to stop at verse 12, but verses 13 and 14 give us just a little more of the context. So Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray now. Almighty and gracious Father, our whole salvation depends 
on our true understanding of your holy word. So we pray that you grant our hearts to be free from worldly concerns and cares, that we might hear and understand your holy word rightly, with all diligence, with all faith, that we might rightly discern your gracious will and cherish it and live by it to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're moving into the last major section of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So we've worked through chapter 5, chapter 6, and now we're heading into chapter 7, this last big section of this first big discourse that Jesus gives in Matthew. Um, we've spent a long time through working through the Sermon on the Mount, so let's just take a quick step back and get the whole picture in view. Uh, it will help orient us to where we are in chapter 7 this morning. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount has, has three main sections, and, and very helpfully the, the chapters uh, correspond with those. So chapter 5, the first big section of the Sermon on the Mount, is about the coming of the kingdom, about the nature of the king, about the nature of citizens of that kingdom, and about how those citizens are supposed to live in righteousness under, under the law. What kind of law is in this kingdom? That's what chapter 5 is, is covering. The coming of the kingdom and the place of the law in the kingdom. Then Jesus moves into chapter 6. And in chapter 6, he brings up the fatherhood of God. And what that means for how we're to live in this kingdom. That this is a kingdom where the king is actually your father. And you're his son. And you have a place here as, as one of privilege. And so you're to live in everything to please him. Not as the hypocrites trying to earn his favor. Uh, not trying to earn the approval of others, but seeking to honor your heavenly father. And then in chapter 7, we transition into the final section. And it's about the judge. It's about the judgment that comes with the kingdom about how God is not only the king and and your father, but he's also your judge. Now, that's not an easy sell compared to the fatherhood of God, is it? Right? We like to hear chapter 6 stuff. Right? He's your father. He loves you. He cares for you. provides for you. He takes care of the birds of heaven. He's going to take care of you. Don't worry. That's comforting. It's encouraging, and it should be. It's precious truth. But we also need to hold together with that chapter 7 where Jesus says, yes, he's your father who loves, cares, and provides for you and comforts you, but he's also your judge. And he is going to come as the great king on the last day and separate the good and the evil, bring a final reckoning. We need to hear this as well. We need to know this. Jesus wants the fact that God is the judge who will be coming again, to have a controlling influence in our lives. He wants us to know God as Father and as Judge at the same time, to know that He's, that he's both those things and not lose sight of either of them. Because if we do, loved ones, we're going to live a distorted kind of Christian life. But if, if we lose sight of God as our Father, we won't be living the Christian life to please our, our gracious Father. At the same time, if we lose sight of God as our judge, then we're going to be shortchanging ourselves on a vital resource for living the Christian life well. So Jesus says God is also the judge, and judgment is coming. Judgment, if we need to know a little bit of the background here. This, this will help, um, help us to see this. Um, in the Old Testament, we read Joel 2. There's other passages um, that, that speak of the coming kingdom of God, the day of the Lord, and the, that, that means judgment is coming as well. 
Um, uh, so we saw this, Joel 2, verses 1 to 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. So the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is a day which is about the kingdom of God coming, but also judgment coming for sin and for sinners. We see this in Isaiah 61, verse 2 promises that the kingdom will be a year of the Lord's favor and also a year of the Lord's judgment on sin. Malachi 3.12, the same thing, talks about the, the Lord will come to purify his people. He's going to save them and purify them and drive out all the sinfulness from them and, and destroy the sinners. So this is, a, this is a big theme in the Old Testament and in the Gospel of Matthew as well. We'll come out especially towards the end of Jesus' teaching. Later on in Matthew, we'll see him talking about this aspect of the coming of the kingdom, that judgment is coming. And here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus begins in this same way, talking about the judgment that's coming in, in the first couple verses. And then again at the end of this chapter, chapter 7, he's going to talk about it as well. And so this, is, this, this in a nutshell is his point. Judgment is coming. The kingdom is coming. That means judgment is coming. Here's how you should live in the light of that. So many cult leaders who falsely predict the end of the world, uh, right? They, they, they raise all this hype. The end of the world, the end of the world. And here's what you got to do. Sell this, sell that. Give me the proceeds. Uh, um, wear this special kind of clothes. Climb up on this hill at this, at this time of year. Um, all right. All, these, all the rigmarole, all the, the, these things that uh, cult leaders will say to do in the light of the end of the world and the judgment that's coming. What does Jesus say? Judgment's coming. What should we do? It's fascinating what he says. Because he says, live an ordinary Christian life. Right? Judgment is coming, so live in these ways. And what he gives us is, is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's very basic discipleship, really. He's saying God's judgment is coming, so be humble. Treat others with forgiveness and grace. Be discerning. Keep praying. Keep persevering. Love others. Those are the things he says. He gives us four commands in this passage. Four things we are to do in the light of the coming kingdom judgment that he's bringing. Let's work through these. The first in verses 1 to 5 is to stay humble. He says, stay humble. Verse 1 is probably one of the most well-known and also most often misquoted verses in Scripture, right? Judge not that you be not judged. Um, Paul Washer, you may know, may know him, he's a preacher. He, uh, he has a little line. He says, twist not Scripture, lest you be like Satan. Right? All right? Judge not that you be not judged is one of those passages that's often twisted. Uh, Jesus is not saying what people often take him to mean. Right? They take him to mean um, that uh, you don't have a right to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong or sinful. You don't have a right uh, to tell me that my opinions and my lifestyle are, are, are um, at fault in any way. Right? I'm my own judge. You be your own judge. Live and let live. That's not what Jesus is saying, of course, at all. He's not saying we shouldn't hold to an objective moral standard. He's saying, don't be censorious. Don't be hypercritical, jumping all over people and, and, and hypercritical of them and fault-finding all the time. In particular, he's calling out our hypocrisy 
our hypocrisy that we're, we're so quick to see everyone else's sins and faults and problems and so slow to see and acknowledge our own. Right? So, so quick to, to wish others would, would deal with their sin or try to get in and deal with their sin for them, but so slow to want to deal with our own sin. We can be listening to a sermon and we can think, wouldn't, wouldn't that guy... Doesn't he need to hear this sermon? Or wouldn't, 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 wouldn't she really benefit from hearing this sermon? Right? Rather than thinking, well, well don't I need to hear this? Uh, we, can, uh, we can have our marriages infected with this kind of a spirit where you can have a long list of what you think your spouse does wrong, and it's much longer than the list you think of what you do wrong. Or, right, we see this between siblings. Kids are so good at pointing out what the other person does wrong but so slow, right? They'll run to you to tattle, but they're never going to run to you to confess gleefully their own sin, right? We see the sin in others. Jesus illustrates his principle here with an absurd image, right? He says, picture a guy with a two-by-twelve sticking out of his forehead, right? This huge plank sticking out of his eye. And this guy is going around and he's, and he's, and he's pointing out to everyone else the little specks of sawdust they have in their eye. And Jesus is saying, you're totally oblivious to the fact you've got this log protruding from your head, but you see this speck of sawdust in this other person's eye. Jesus so well understands how self-righteous our hearts are. I remember as a kid hearing this passage and then going home and applying it. I'd say to my siblings, you've got the log, I've got the speck. Right? Right? That was my sense. Well, right, I, I know I have a sin. Right. I know one of us has a log and one of us has the sawdust, but you've got the log in this situation. I remember saying that to my siblings. Right. Jesus understands our hearts are so like that. So quick to play down and ignore and just be unaware of our sin, but so quick to jump all over it when it's in someone else. Jesus illustrates the, the attitude that he's talking about here in another place as well. In Luke 18, he gives us a wonderful illustration in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. On the one hand, he says, there's the Pharisee, the hypocrite, right, who is there praying, thanking God that he's not a terrible sinner like everybody else. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. Right, he's supposed to be a religious expert, the Pharisee, of course, but, but he is... No, no, no humility, no sense of my sin, right? It's just everyone else is a sinner. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. And then on the other hand, you have the tax collector, right? This despised, lowly tax collector. And he, his prayer is, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's the same attitude the Apostle Paul has. In 1 Timothy 1.15, same attitude as the tax collector there, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Right? That's the attitude that Christians are to have. Be merciful to me, the sinner, the chief of sinners. Whose sin is the biggest problem in your life? someone else's? It's your own. We need to see that our response, we take responsibility first for our own sin and to see that our biggest challenge and our biggest conflict is with our own sin first. We are by nature so self-righteous and proud 
and, and, and we, we are so quick to censor others rather than seeing our own sin. And we are to take that sin to the Lord and ask for His grace to deal with it. So when, 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 when uh, does this mean then that we don't confront others for their sin at all? Jesus says first, you know, acknowledge the log in your eye and deal with that. But then he says, no, then once you've dealt with that, yes, you are to go. Do go and confront others at times. Just don't come as the judge. Come as the forgiven sinner seeking to help. Right? Don't, don't come so often when we're trying to help someone out, uh, or help someone out, right? Criticizing them for something, right? We come and we kind of rub the sawdust around in their eye instead of coming to help and try to help them get it out. The goal is to, in, to encourage them. Jesus tells us why we should behave this way, seeing our sin first, seeing our sin as the bigger problem, uh, dealing with that first, and then helping others with their sins. He says, do this because, verse 2, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see what he's saying? He's pointing us to that judgment we started out by talking about, the judgment of God that's coming, and the fact that God is the judge, not you. And that you are living as one who is a sinner who's going to stand before God and give an account. And, and all your hope is going to be His grace to you. So if that's true of you, Jesus is saying, if, if you understand God is your judge and your only hope before Him on the day of judgment is His grace to you, then don't go jumping over, all, all over others for their sin. Don't go around uh, having a, 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 a censorious and hypercritical spirit. But be gracious and kind and forgiving and patient. Because you, need, you, need, you know that you need grace, so you'll give it. This is the first command Jesus gives us. The judge is coming, so see your own sin. Humble yourself before the Lord. Then be humble with others. Deal with your sin first. Be patient with others. Second thing he tells us here in verse 3 is to be discerning. Be discerning, he says in verse 3. His words here first seem quite puzzling. Um, he says, Don't give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. What does he mean? What are these dogs and these swine, these dogs and hogs, as one writer put it? Uh, what, what, what's going on with these, with these animals? Well, in, in Jewish culture, dogs are not pets. They're vicious scavengers out in the streets, right? So th- these are not, it's not a pleasant thing to be compared to. And, and then pigs, of course, are, are the, uh, the archetypal unclean animal um, in, in Jewish culture. And so the, by, by, by referring to dogs and hogs, Jesus is referring to those who are outcasts, unclean, uh, th- those who are not receptive, not part of the covenant community, not receptive to the message of the gospel, who aren't in his kingdom and who are viciously opposed to it. What does this have to do with what Jesus has just said, though? He just has been talking about don't judge lest you be judged. Now why is he talking about don't cast your pearls before swine? It's a balance with what he's just said, isn't it? Right? He's, he's just said, don't rush to judge and condemn others. Be forgiving, be patient, be persistent with them, working with your own sin first and then helping them with theirs. But, but now he's saying this could be taken to an extreme, right? You can approach every situation thinking, I'm the one most at fault here. And, and that's not always true. 
you can sometimes be in a situation where someone else really is more in the wrong. And you really are in the right. And it would be wrong in that situation to take full blame for it. And also, Jesus is saying there might come a point as you're dealing with someone in their sin that you realize you've done everything you can. You've held out the gospel. You've held out what the Word of God says. They're continuing to refuse to listen, refuse to repent. And at some point, Jesus is saying you need to, you need to move on, and that's okay to do. He says you wouldn't keep throwing precious pearls to pigs. They're just going to keep stomping them in the mud, and then they're going to turn and attack you. We see this at play in Paul's ministry in Acts 13. Um, Paul comes to Antioch, and he goes to the synagogue there where the Jews are gathering, and he, he goes and he tells the Jews about the gospel, tells them about Christ. And they like it. They want to hear more. So he comes back the next Sabbath to, to tell them more. But this time, they decide it's enough. So they kick him out of the synagogue. So Paul says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul's saying, okay, I'm going to apply that principle that Jesus taught us. I'm not going to keep on uh, uh, throwing the rich pearls of the gospel to those who refuse to hear it. I'm going to go to the Gentiles with it. There's something fascinating, though, about Paul's words here and, and about Jesus' words here, which are really turning the tables, aren't they, on the Jews? And you can imagine Jesus', Jesus hearers, Sermon on the Mount, all Jews, they're listening to his words, and he talks about the dogs and the pigs, and, and, and they're thinking, okay, he's talking about Gentiles, right? Don't waste the gospel on Gentiles. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, he's really saying to them, right, don't, don't be like the unbelievers. He, 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 he's, uh, as, as Paul does, right, Paul is saying to the, uh, uh, in Acts 13, Paul is saying to the Jews there, you've become the, the unclean ones and the ones who are rejecting the word. And that's, I think, part of what's going on here, that Jesus is, is calling out his hearers who are those who resist the gospel. And he's saying, you are becoming like a dog or a pig who refuses to hear the gospel and tramples it. And so Jesus' words are a warning here that you can... You can uh, that, that, that you not be one who would trample the word of God and the gospel of God. That you not be one who refuses to listen and refuses to repent. Jesus is saying the kingdom is come. The rich pearl of great price is here. So don't reject it. Don't be blind and deaf to the Messiah. The third thing he commands us in verses 7 to 11 is to keep praying. So we've seen, he says, uh, be, be humble. And he says, be discerning. And now keep praying, verses 7 through 11. Right, so remember the context. Kingdom is coming. That means judgment of God is coming. What does that mean for how we live? Jesus says, keep on praying. Um, we've seen his warning about those who reject the kingdom and are under his judgment. In verse 6, these people who are like dogs and swine. And he says, Jesus says, persevere. Keep praying, persevere in prayer and seeking the kingdom that you would not reject the kingdom, not be like those who trample it and reject it, but be like those who earnestly desire it and seek it. He uses three parallel terms 
to refer to how do we talk, how, how, how we look for the kingdom. He says you should ask, seek, and knock. He doesn't mean once. The sense of the, the, the tense of the Greek there is to continually ask and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. This should be a lifestyle of those who are Christians. Keep on persisting and asking God to bring His kingdom, to grant you a place in His kingdom. Right? Keep seeking that from Him. He's telling us to pray persistently. And He's calling us to make our whole lives a prayer of seeking the kingdom of God. Do you, do you pray earnestly and persistently, seeking and knocking, right? hammering on heaven's door, and asking God to grant you the riches of His kingdom and to give you a place in it. Lord, don't let me be like the, the pig that tramples on the pearl, but help me to be receptive to Your Word. And help me to, help me to give, me a, give me a place in Your kingdom. And give me the riches that are mine in Christ. I guess most of us would say, well, no, I don't pray enough for that. I pray, but not enough. Not as much as I know I should. What's, why? What's the reason for that? If something matters to us, we're not, usually, um, we're not usually lazy about it, right? If it's something we think is really worth doing, we're going to get down and do it. It's when something we think is not worth doing that we, that we decide we're not going to do it or we're going to be lazy about it. What is it about praying, seeking the kingdom of God that we think, ah, oh, it's just not, not worth the effort, not worth the time. Other things are more important. Maybe we doubt God's power. Maybe we don't pray because we think, well, God would love to do something, but He can't. I don't think so. Maybe that's what we're doubting. Um, But I think more likely, and I think this is what Christ's words point us to, more likely we doubt His goodness. We know God is powerful. He's the Creator, made everything. Of course He can do whatever He pleases. But does he care to? Does he want to? Does he, and is he going to bless me? Does he, does he love me and, and have his, his, my, my good in, in mind? Right? We have the doubts that, that right, his providence in our lives can seem hard and challenging and tiring and too much to handle. Maybe he doesn't care and he's not going to listen. So that's why I don't pray. Because I don't think he's really good to me. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our doubts. So... Once again, even as he's been talking here about the coming kingdom and the judgment of God, that that means, reminds us here that this judge is your father. And he loves you and he's going to provide for you. Everything that I said, he's saying, everything I said in chapter 6 is still true in chapter 7. God is your judge. He's still your father. And because he's your father, if you ask him, he will answer you keep asking, seeking, knocking, He's going to give you good things. If you pray for His kingdom to come and to come in your life, to come in your home, to come in our church, He's going to keep doing it. Jesus makes this comparison for us. He points to, to our own dads and our own children. He says, which of you dads would give his son a loaf of uh, a, a, a rock instead of a loaf of bread? Right? Your son comes to you, Dad, I'm hungry. Well, have a rock. Right? Dad, I'm hungry. Have a snake. Right? No, we don't, we don't do that with our kids because we love our kids. We know what they need. and We provide the things they need uh, to, 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 to live. And Jesus says, you're a sinner. 
you're evil. And you know still how to be a good dad and provide what your kids need. How much more? The perfect, holy, all-wise, heavenly Father. He is infinitely good, infinitely wise. He knows how to give good things to His children far better than you do. And He is more than ready to give them. But think of that. Remember that. We deserve nothing good from God's hand. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His justice. But He has overwhelmed us with His grace. Right, given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is not stingy in our salvation. He's not giving us a part, waiting for us to prove ourselves before He gives us the rest. He gives it all. And He gave it all when we were sinners in rebellion against Him. He's given us His Son. Right? How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He paid that price. Not so that we could be paupers in His kingdom, but so that we could have the riches of a glorious inheritance together with Christ. The whole kingdom is ours. And He is graciously determined to give it all to us. He is disposed to give us everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He delights to. He says, ask. Seek. Keep on asking, seeking, praying, and I will give you the riches of the kingdom of heaven. He's our judge. He's also our Father. So let's keep praying that He bring His kingdom and bless us in it and with it. The fourth and final command Jesus gives us in this section is keep loving. Verse 12, keep loving. This is, of course, the golden rule. Um, Do to others what you'd wish they would do to you. This, Jesus says, is the whole law and the prophets, right? That's the summary title for all of Scripture, all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Jesus says everything the Old Testament commands you to do can be summed up in this. Treat others as you'd have them treat you. This is all the ethical teaching of the Old Testament in one sentence. And again, remember the, uh, remember the context. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God coming and the judgment of God coming with that kingdom. And he's saying in the light of that, in the light of that, love others, treat others as you would want yourself to be treated. Interestingly, the golden rule is not unique to Christ. Um, other religions have something similar often or other, other worldviews or life views have uh, the same principle. But, but usually it's stated negatively. Usually, in its other varieties, it's put like this. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. It's a negative thing, right? You don't like being cut off in traffic. Don't cut others off in traffic. You don't like it when people uh, yell at you. Don't yell at other people. Don't treat others the way you don't want to be treated. But Jesus' words are unique. He asks much, much more. He says the Word of God demands much, much more. The holiness of God demands much more. He says don't just not do to others what you don't want done to you, but do for others what you want done for you. It's something you've got to think hard about and be intentional about. Go out of your way to do this. How do you want others to treat you? We've seen a little bit in the sermon already, right? Previously, Jesus talked about this judgmental spirit. How do you want others to treat you when you sin? 
How do you want them to treat your failures and your shortcomings and your faults? Graciously, right? Helpfully. So treat others that way. Do you appreciate it when people reach out to you and ask you how you're doing? Then think of others and, and reach out to others and ask them how they're doing. Do you appreciate it being served? Then serve. This is the rule of thumb for how we are to treat each other in the kingdom. This is not normally how we think, right? Kids, I want you to picture this for a minute, okay? You're sitting on the couch, you're watching a movie, and you really want some popcorn, right? And you think... I'm going to tell my younger sibling to go get me some popcorn, right? Because I want some popcorn. That's the way our human hearts think. I want that. I want someone else to do that for me. Jesus says, that's not how you live in my kingdom. Why don't you say to your sibling, would you like some popcorn? And then you get up, and then you go in, and you make the popcorn, you bring it to your sibling. Because that's, Jesus says, that's the principle in my kingdom. You want something? You want, you, you want to be treated a certain way, loved and cared for and thought of? Go do that for others. And of course, of course, this has so many more applications than a movie and popcorn, right? This is a whole way of life for the Christian. This, of course, is nothing less than what God has done for us, right? Think of what our Lord Jesus did for us. He didn't just not treat us as he would not want to be treated, but he went out of his way. He humbled himself. He didn't come with a censorious, hypercritical spirit judging us for our sin. He will come to judge sinners, but the first time he came humbly and he came to pay the price of our forgiveness and he came to help sinners and heal sinners and have compassion on them. He came and, 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 and out of his love for us, putting others first, putting himself last, he came to serve, not to be served. He did it for us, ungrateful sinners. He's the pearl of great price, and he throws himself before sinners. And we trample on it. Psalm 22 talks about how he suffered the violence of, 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 of ravenous dogs tearing him apart, right? As he gives himself for sinners. See, this is what he does. He doesn't ignore our need. He doesn't think of himself first. He thinks of us, and he came to serve us and to save us by his suffering and by his death. So that's, that's our motive for these things. And that's our hope, right? We've been talking about the coming judgment of God and the way that God wants us to live in the light of that coming judgment. But it's all to be a reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all to be because, right, it's not our hope in, in the coming judgment that, that I'm justified by my works. I'm justified by what Christ did on my behalf. His love to me, not mine to Him, not mine to others. That's our hope. We're not living in terror then of the coming judgment, right? We're living as sons, looking forward to their father coming home to save them, ask them for an account, but save them. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord God, for your word, for your son, for the clarity with which he speaks, clarity of your word. We pray that we would be convicted under it, and changed by it, and made more to reflect the, the wonderful heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look ahead to the coming judgment, when he will return to judge the living and the dead, make us more like him 
And help us to keep that in mind and to walk faithfully before him, humbly with others. We ask this for his dear sake. Amen.